And if, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open them to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. We'll pick it up in verse 1, but um, our focus will be on verses 9 through 13 this evening. We're really picking up on kind of part two of one really, really long sermon. And it was going to be too long to preach in one go at it, so maybe two kind of smaller um, bite-sized messages. What I've titled tonight's message, The Demise of True Religion, part two, considering traditionalism. Follow along with me in Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with, their hand, ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honors me, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. This ends the reading of the Word of God. In verses 1 through 8, Jesus goes after legalism. Simply put, the Pharisees and some of the scribes from Jerusalem had added to the commandments of God. In order to gain divine favor, they had this ritualistic washing that they must do No problem in doing this washing, but the problem that they had was that they were imposing that upon other people. That is not commanded in Scripture. And Jesus addresses this rather harshly to them in verses 6 through 8. And picking up right there, Jesus is going to address the other side of the coin. Whenever we think about legalism as adding to the commandments of God, we must also understand that there is a ditch on the other side of the road, and that is called antinomianism, which is really against the law. And so whereas whereas legalism is the adding to the commands of God, antinomianism is the subtracting from the known commands of God. And wouldn't you know it, the Pharisees are doing both. Their tradition has caused them to add to and take away from the Word of God. This is why we see the demise of true religion with them. And so what we have here, look at, follow along with me again and look at verse 9. We have the indictment that Jesus wants to make. 
Jesus really here unleashes a second round of indictments against the scribes and Pharisees. Look again, verse 8, he tells them that you have basically you have sidestepped the commandment of God for your tradition. You have left the commandment, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. What he's saying there is instead of sticking with the commands of God, you walk away from them for your tradition. Well, then now in verse 9, he says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So he's going and he's making an even stronger statement here to the scribes and the Pharisees. Again, you would feel very awkward observing this intense, really, it's one-sided from Jesus to the Pharisees as he's exposing them for what they are. And I want you to observe the move that he makes here from leaving the command of God in verse 8 to now rejecting the command of God. It's getting worse. Under the heading I've supplied, it is the Scriptures rejected by the scribes and the Pharisees. And we see that they are guilty of doing both. As I said, when traditions are become the sacred, cra- the sacred cow of a religious group or a church, legalism is on one side and the rejection of God's known commands are on the other. And we must stay in the center, which is the gospel. And we must always be preaching the gospel to ourselves and reminding ourselves of the gospel and preaching the gospel to others because when we are gospel-centered, Christ-focused, we are avoiding the ditches on both sides. Pharisees are guilty of both. And so lest Jesus be guilty of just generalizing this statement and saying, you just, you, you, you reject the commandments. He wants to give them a specific example. So he's going to go, instead of just being an over, overgeneralizing, for argument's sake, he's going to point out something and just gives one example of how they do this in rejecting the Scriptures. Notice with me here in verses 10 through 12, this is the example given from Jesus. He says, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and if whoever and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But here it is. But you say, you don't want to hear that. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Allow me to give you four observations here from this passage. Notice first that Jesus appeals to a clear authority. This is very important. He appeals to Moses. This is a shared authority. He could have said, for God says, that means the same thing. But he's talking about Moses as their authority. They recognize him. When he says Moses, he's talking about the law. This is something they would recognize. So Jesus first appears to a clear authority. Second, he appeals to a clear command. You notice here, it's the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. It's pretty plain and simple, is it not? What this means here, this honor your father and mother, it means to respect. It means to obey. It means to care for one's parents. You notice here, Moses, neither Moses nor Jesus gives an expiration date for this. It's not just honor your parents so long as you live underneath their roof. Actually, no. This, what's, what we'll see here is that this honoring is to go for your entire lifetime. This is the problem that they make. They make this Corbin clause. 
So notice here, he appeals to a clear command. Also important to note, it's honor your father and your mother. It's not just honor your father. Oftentimes, children who are in the home a lot with their mothers tend to take advantage of their mothers. It's honor your father and your mother equally. Not to draw any distinction there. They both are worthy of honor. Third observation, Jesus appeals to a clear consequence. So a clear authority, a clear command, and a clear consequence. We notice here he says that whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. This is Exodus 21, 17. We would read, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. There's a clear consequence for breaking the command. There's no ambiguity here from Jesus, nor from Moses. This isn't a, a, a open to interpretation how you want to do this kind of thing. Yet no matter how clear it is, the Pharisees make it murky. They make what is clear murky. In this fourth observation, Jesus appeals to a clear rejection. But you say if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. What has happened here is that the Pharisees have created a loophole in the law. That's what they have done here. And in this context, we see that Jesus is making it clear that honoring your father and mother is more than just respect and obedience. No, here, what we understand here is that there was a responsibility of the younger to care for the material and financial needs of aging parents as well. Now, that seems a little different in our because of our cultural context, we have 401k and social security and retirement planning. And, and, and so usually those things are, are, you know, those did not exist in the first century. And the nuclear family was very different in the first century than it is now. We think of husband and wife and kids all under one roof. And while that is true even of the first century, family systems were a lot larger. And people were geographically located. It's kind of like Rhode Island. Once you come here, you never end up leaving, no matter how hard you try. Nonetheless, families were, were not under, necessarily under one roof, but families stayed together generationally. And so the younger were to care for the aging in that way. So the expectation was to honor your father and your mother in their age. And no doubt this could have seemed like a burden to some And the Pharisees knew that. And so what is created here is this loophole in the law called this Corbin Clause. They would say that if you basically would declare your wealth or your possessions or anything that you had as a gift to God, you were no longer obligated to use that for the support of your family, for the support of your mother and father. It was a sacred gift offering. It was a pledge offering that you would give. And if we think about this for a second, I think we would, our minds would say, where in the world did this come from? How could, we have, how could they have created this Corbin provision? No doubt the Corbin declaration that was through the oral tradition, scribal tradition, was made by looking at Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. They would have narrowly interpreted this verse, which reads, 
If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself to a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do, he shall do all according to that which proceeds out of his mouth. And so what the Pharisees and the scribes were saying was, if you make a pledge of a sacred gift to the Lord, you no longer have to use that for honoring your father and your mother. In fact, you don't need to do anything. This is a loophole here. The vow was used to get around the financial responsibility for caring for aging parents. One commentator on this, commenting on this passage of Scripture says, you can interpret it this way, quote, Whatever it is by which I might benefit you, whether now or in the future, I here and now declare that it, I declare it to be considered an offering. Therefore, you are not responsible. I am not responsible. And once this claim was stated, the scribal tradition no longer permitted this man or woman, whoever it might be, to care for their parents, no longer permitted them to do anything for their parents. Brothers and sisters, we read this. This is wickedness. This is pure wickedness. This is a complete disregard for the authority of God's word. They're playing fast and loose with the Bible. With the revelation of God that through Moses was given. In fact, they're taking the second table of the law and they're reinterpreting it according to their cultural context. So here's the point. Whereas in verses 1 through 8, we see that they're adding to the commands of Scripture with their tradition, now they are subtracting from the clear commands of Scripture. It is the Scriptures rejected here. And Jesus takes serious issue with this. We do not have the right to pick and choose what applies. Now, we must use proper interpretive uh, framework for understanding what does and doesn't apply. Old covenant, new covenant, correct. As new covenant believers, we are not under the ceremonial law. We are not Jews. Nonetheless, we need to have a healthy understanding of the law and how that applies to us as Christians. What they did here was they rejected the Scriptures. And for what? We would see in verse 13, to uphold their tradition. Notice with me the result that Jesus gives them for their rejection of the Scriptures. Verse 13, thus making void the Word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. It's what you have handed down. It's your tradition. It's not, this isn't God's revelation. This is a stinging indictment from Jesus. You have put your, your way, your system, and you have made it against the Word of God, thus making void the Word of God. Imagine how these Pharisees felt as they, they asked the question, why do they eat with defiled hands? And they were basically told, your entire system is a sham that you've created this isn't true religion. This is the demise of true religion. You have taken what is pure and holy. The law of the Lord is perfect, right? Reviving the soul. And you have twisted it and taken it and just totally voided the Scriptures, the Word of God. Notice with me the progression of this entire passage. Verse 6. You hypocrites. Vain worship. 
in verse 7. Leaving the, leaving the commands of God, verse 8. Rejecting the commands of God, verse 9. And now, finally, verse 13, making void the word of God. It is like they're going down, 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 deeper and deeper into this cesspool of sin and iniquity. What does it mean to make void the word of God? Quite simply, Jesus is saying, your system says that this word is not valid. You have invalidated the word. To be void means not legally binding. Completely empty. So in their attempt to uphold the traditions of men, they completely lose and invalidate the only objective standard of truth and righteousness. We get away from the word of God. What do we have? I remember being down, we were down in Louisville this uh, last um, winter, and we were sitting there in, in a room full of pastors, and we're doing our, our, our seminar. And one of the guys, he's, he's from Africa, and he, he had flown over for the seminar, and uh, he was just a really boisterous guy. I, I loved him, but man, he just, he'd talk, and he was blunt to the point. And someone was talking, giving their opinion, and he looked at the guy, and he says, you know one thing you'll never find in the Scriptures he says, your opinion. I was like, ooh. ooh that, but true. What, what do we have? Our opinions. We have the word of God, the objective standard. And if we get away from that like they did, we've got nothing. And so we must recognize here that the source of false religion is always self. And that's all that they're left with. And it's not as though the nullification of the fifth commandment was their only practice. Jesus just uses this one as an example because he says at the end of verse 13, notice the last sentence, and many such things you do. It's more than just this, but here, for example, the moral law is left voided. What are we to make of this? Let me think about this passage of Scripture here. How are we to respond to such a message? When we think about the dangers of legalism and antinomianism and wanting to stay gospel-centered in our approach, in our faith, in our practice, I think the question that we should have and ask of ourselves are what areas of my life do I seek to justify behaviors, actions, or attitudes that in practice I'm making void the Word of God? What is my Corbin clause? So I'm going to honor my father and mother, but what other such things might we do where we might want to claim it to be Christian liberty when it's lawlessness? Maybe we ask the question, how do I rationalize my sin? When the Bible says, forgive seven times 70, but she hurt me really, really bad. But he treated me so bad. How could I... or? When the Bible tells us to love our enemies, when we say all of them, even people from a different political party that murder babies, I'm to love my enemies. Or when the Bible tells us to strive for peace with everyone, and we ask the question, does everyone mean everyone? All people without exception? All people without distinction? You see, it's not hard to start to actually create a Corbin Clause when you think about it. 
But some of us might respond and say, but we are new covenant believers and we scream that we're not under the law, but we're under grace. Absolutely. Salvation is by grace alone through faith. Absolutely. The law doesn't save. But that doesn't make us autonomous, meaning self-law, auto, self, nomos, law, or antinomianism, anti, against, nomos, law, no. So the first way I would say that we could respond by way of applying this text is to ask, where's my Corbin clause? And then the second way in which I think we could respond to this text faithfully is to understand, is to know the Christian's relationship to the law and the role that it plays. And this ties in really well with what Pastor Jim was talking about this morning. So, I want to give you, simply, four ways in which we can understand and grow in our healthy relationship to the law, that the law plays in the role of the Christian life. And first, is we need to understand and recover a healthy, we need to recover a healthy understanding of the law. Coming out of the Reformation, some of the reformers quite well articulated the uses of the law. There are three uses of the law. And we talk about the law. I'm talking about the Old Testament here. And more, most importantly, I'm talking about the moral law of God. Understand there are three uses of the law. The first use of the law is to restrain evil. Whenever you see a society that walks away from the law of God, think about, a, think about a society or a culture that would reject the second table of the law. That's commands 5 through 10. We think about the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. Well, yeah, that's open to interpretation. That's a scary place. Thou shalt not steal. That's a scary place. So the, the, it, it's really for the civil magistrate to restrain evil. So first use of the law is restraining evil. The second use of the law is to show us our need for a savior. That's what Paul was talking about when he learned to covet, when he learned what coveting was. The law shows us our need for a law keeper. Brothers and sisters, there's only ever been one law keeper. There's only ever been one covenant keeper. If we're honest with ourselves, we are the covenant breakers. We don't look at Israel and say, what's wrong with you? We look at Israel and we say, we identify with you. And we need a covenant keeper. We need a law keeper. That is found in Jesus Christ and Him alone. The perfect Son of God who kept the law. Came to not abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So, first use of the law restrains evil. Second use of the law to show us our need for a Savior. And the third use of the law is a guide for Christian behavior. This is so important to understand. We don't walk away from the commandments of God. No, we don't want to leave, reject, and make void the word of God. So it is a guide for Christian behavior. What does the Christian life look like? Obedience. We live like we've been given a law to obey. No, we're not under all the ceremonial law. You can wear mixed fabric. You can eat a medium rare steak and love it. I love seafood. I'm thankful that I get to eat that. I have the Christian liberty. But we, all, we do recognize that the moral law of God is binding. And the majority of every commandment in the moral law of God of the Ten Commandments is repeated in the New Testament. And, they over, they, and Jesus actually tightens it. You have heard it said, but I say to you, 
If you look at a woman with lustful intentions, you've committed adultery in your heart. So it's not just, it's not about the letter, it's the spirit of the law there too. But I say to you, if you hate your brother or sister, you are guilty of murder. And so we see that Jesus actually tightens it up. So three uses of the law, restrains evil, shows us our need for a savior, and is a guide for Christian behavior. This is how we would recover a healthy understanding of the law. Second principle in our relationship to the law, we need to remember that Christ fulfilled the requirements of the law. As I had already said, but let me just remind you, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law, and that is credited to your account by faith. That's what imputed righteousness is. It is the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ under the whole moral law of God. There's only ever been, like I said, one covenant keeper, one law keeper. There's only ever been one person who loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor as himself perfectly, never ceasing doing that all the days of his life. From the time he was an infant all the way until 33 and his death, never once did he waver in his love for God and for people. Christ fulfilled the requirements of the law. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We are united to the law keeper. A glorious truth. Third principle in understanding our relationship to the law. We need to, we need to receive the law as good. Sometimes we've, we've heard, we might have been guilty of this. I think I have been in the past. When we talk about the gospel, we want to talk about the good news and the bad news. Gospel really meaning good news, the evangelion. And so what we say is, here's the bad news, the law. Here's the good news, grace. Here's the bad news, that's not true. That's not how we are to talk about the law of God. The law is good news. So when we talk about, when we, we don't want to talk about, you know, this idea of we have this tyrannical God in the Old Testament, and this gracious God in the New Testament. That's crazy talk. The law is good Here's good news. God has given us a law that reveals who he is and what he requires of us. Here's the better news. There's a law keeper who's done all those good things, all the right things in upholding the law. So when we talk about law and gospel, it's good news and great news. Understand. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, this is the preface to the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Understand this. In the relationship of law and grace, it is always grace before law. 
It is always, that's what God does here. I have delivered you out of Egypt. Now live as my people. Adam and Eve, you sin. Here's the promise of a Savior. And then, yes, the curses came. But it is always grace before law. Eden, Egypt, Calvary, the new covenant. And fourth, we need to reevaluate our lives in accordance with the moral law. A very scary passage that Jesus says as he's wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's important to note in this text that Jesus, that I just read for you, that the reasons why they were not in, why Jesus does not let them into heaven, but sends them to hell, it's not because they didn't claim the name of Jesus. No, they said, Lord, Lord, emphatically declaring that they knew him. It's not because they didn't serve in the church. They absolutely did. It's not because they didn't preach. They prophesy in your name and do many mighty works. No, they did all the things. So the reason why Jesus gives here, that they, the reason that Jesus gives, it's not because they didn't live a certain way. It's, it's because they lived as though Jesus never gave them a law to obey. You workers of lawlessness. In fact, it's what... Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so it is my prayer that when we look at this passage, maybe it is something that can help to to recalibrate us because we're not living in the ditches, but sometimes we can get close to them. And we need to step back if we're living loose and we're trying to justify our behavior when the Word of God is very clear on how we are to act. Or if we're doing things and adding to, we need to come back to the center because everything is to come underneath the authority of God's Word. This is our standard. This is all that we have. The Word of God is the sole guide for faith and practice. The book of James gives us a healthy understanding of the role of the law in our lives. And I think it'd be wise to uh, spend some time in that book in practical living out of true religion. So the warnings that we see here is that the demise of true religion comes when we add to the Scriptures commands that are not there and when we subtract from the Scripture the commands that are there. And may we be so gospel-centered, Bible-saturated that we are careful to do neither. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the warnings of Scripture. We thank you for every word and line and precept, command that you have given us. That you reveal yourself to us through your word. Father, help us to live lives of conformity to the image of your Son as we seek to submit ourselves underneath your authority, your revealed revelation to us, your special revelation. And we thank you that we have Bibles and that we can know you. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.